0: Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast about the uh, major events, persons, ideas, developments in the long history of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, You can find the podcast on major platforms like Spotify and iTunes, and on YouTube. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, We're also on Facebook, Um, please go to the page and like it, and also on the web at churchcontroversies.com. Thank you everyone for listening, and uh, this is our latest episode, which is on Americanism, which I've titled Heresy American Style, uh, 1890 to 1900. This is on the Americanist controversy of the 1890s or so, and uh, has to do with Something that's kind of related to what uh, the topic I did a whole series on uh, a few months ago, uh, liberalism, Catholic liberalism, in the Catholic Church, and I thought since we just passed the Fourth of July holiday, uh, this would be a good topic to dive a little more deeply into and talk about it uh, for for my audience. So, and again, you know, before we get into this, thank you guys for listening. Appreciate everyone, and. Um, and so well, let's talk about this. You probably heard this term if you're Catholic. Maybe you haven't. Maybe if you're educated. Well, you, probably, you probably do know this. Americanism. And What is that, Americanism? And I want to I start off by telling a little bit of a story. Um, goes back to, uh, well, it goes back to the elections, presidential elections, about mm, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, 2008, if you recall, in 2008. Uh, this is when Hillary Clinton first ran for president of the United States. And I recall at that time she was giving having a rally, her for her supporters, in St. Louis, Missouri. And if you have to recall at the time, Cardinal, uh, excuse me, yeah, I guess it was, it was Cardinal at the time. I mean, I guess it was Bishop, Archbishop Raymond Burke was the the prelate who presided in the church there. And when she gave that rally, I think he he gave a speech. He made a statement to the effect that. Uh, Catholics should not, you know, support her and go to the rally. I don't think he actually forbade anyone from going there. And a lot of, of course, Catholics in the area were upset about this. And the reason being, by the way, her open support for, you know, abortion rights. And um, one person who did show up to that rally was a man, a man named Rick Majerus, the late Rick Majerus. You know who this is. Rick Majerus was the is a, was a college basketball coach at Utah, University of Utah, for a long time. But at that time was the head coach of the St. Louis University basketball team, St. Louis University being a, a Jesuit, a Catholic school. And he attended the rally. And this is the part that I remember always stuck with me when explaining why he felt like he had the right to go to a rally to support a politician who supported abortion rights, which is against church teaching. I can't remember the exact words, you can look this up on the internet and find it, but one of the things he said was, my father fought at Iwo Jima during World War II, and I don't remember what else he said, but in his mind, that was his justification was, well, my dad fought for our country, and therefore, you know, he had a right to go to a rally he wanted to, and my point is, one of the things about Americans is they, they tend to, especially American Catholics, they tend to conflate, I think, love for their country with religion, and that's why I told that story, because it, it struck me at the time. I'm like, oh, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and it doesn't, strictly speaking, but is a very common phenomenon among, uh, among American Catholics. And what does that have to do with our topic, Americanism? Well, Americanism, as we will get to, was a, as you'll see, is a sort of idea uh, that gets sort of condemned by the pope in 1900 um which we'll we'll go through the actual text in a second but i want to get to this and why it was condemned there's been a controversy about this just you know i don't often explain in some of these uh, episodes like why these things are controversial um these things are controversial this term is a controversial for several reasons one it was used at the time in a way that uh, you know basically it was uh, americanism was the idea that um you know, American society is Protestant, it's inspired by the Enlightenment, and therefore to embrace it wholeheartedly. The idea basically is how much can Catholics in good conscience embrace American society and its culture. And the idea of Americanism was, as was invented by the people who used that term, was that people who are, you know, they're basically embracing separation of church and state as the ideal of Catholic teaching. Not as something like Leo Thirteenth basically said, we'll get to him in a moment, could be acceptable in certain circumstances, but as the optimum for the Catholic Church, that it would flourish best in a modern setting like this, or that modern I- or, or conversely, the Church needed to adapt itself to certain mon- modern ideas that were supposedly you know, uh, best exemplified by American society. That's more or less what Americanism refers to. The other reason it's controversial, I should mention, by the way, is because modern... Very progressive, normally Catholics, they like to deride the whole idea that there ever was anything as america uh, any such thing as Americanism. Americanism is a phantom; it's not a real heresy. Um, and uh, other words, they think it's just a matter of, um, they think it's a term of abuse that shouldn't be applied to anything. As you're going to see, they're wrong about that. They're all, all, they are actually though right, as you're going to see. It's really not technically speaking a heresy at all, which we'll get to. Okay. That's the outlier of this. I want to get a little background on this. So this happens in the late 1800s. But just a little background on on Catholicism in America. Briefly, I can go into much more detail here. I don't want to bore you. But there had always been a tendency among Catholics in America, even in colonial times, to sort of valorize the experience of people in the New World, in the colonies. You go back to colonial uh, times in fact, the most prominent family, as it comes into the early Republic, the uh, Carroll family, the Carrolls of Carrollton in Maryland. You know, Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony, was run by Catholics until they were thrown out <laughs> in 1689, uh, when uh, England had its revolution and the uh, Protestants took over. And yet, uh, the influence of that family is very important for the for Catholics of the United States, and... Um, Charles Carroll, who I did a a little podcast on uh, earlier, uh, way back in the Catholic Lives series, was someone who uh, exemplifies how much uh, Catholics living in colonial America were influenced by things like the Enlightenment. I actually had a chance to read some of his letters one time. And he talks about how, and it's it's very striking, about how, you know, reason is one of the major things. He emphasizes reason more than anything else. Uh, emphasizes how you know compatible Catholicism is, is with the spirit of the age. That it's a tolerant age. That we don't. That he looked askance at the the conflicts of the old world, and so he's already there's already this sort of idea that you know we're much better because we're not. again, some of this is good. You're not fighting with Protestants like cats and dogs. But there's also some affinity because there are, of course are a lot of people in the American colonies who are also influenced by the Enlightenment. People who make the revolution happen are influenced by it. And uh, other people, even after the revolution is over, um, Catholics who come from Ireland, for example, the American, he's kind of a mm, liberal or progressive Catholic historian. Jay Dolan mentions this in one of his books. Uh, an Irishman named Matthew Carey became a bookseller was from Ireland. I immigrated to the United States in 1784. Uh, his views are very similar to Charles, Car- Charles Carroll's. Uh, Barry, again, the idea that Enlightenment ideals were great, there was no incompatibility compatibility between them and Catholicism uh, and again, th- these were a minority of people, right, these are the most educated people in the colonies, hard to say what ordinary people thought at that point point. Uh, and you also have early on, besides the Enlightenment, the influence of Protest- Protestantism on American life um, in the early Republic in the 1830s, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville who was a sort of nominally Catholic um, nobleman came from France to observe life in America, wrote a book about it, Democracy in America. And he mentioned how much he thought Protestantism had an effect on uh, on Catholicism, how it made it more, well, made it more democratic is the, the term he used for all this. So even in the colonial period, there's a little bit of influence from all this stuff. And of course, the American Revolution uh, has the effect of um, galvanizing Catholics, the sort of... English Catholics, we'll call them, Anglo-Catholics, um, who um, are present in the colonies after the Revolution is successful, um, sort of wed that those Catholics to the American Republic for obvious reasons. And in fact, the settlement of the you know the First Amendment and all that stuff, it's sometimes talked about as, as if it were just a purely Enlightenment thing or something like this, but it's really, it's a combination of two things. The influence of a specific type of Protestantism. Um, I'm going to use the term free church Protestantism, you know what that is. Free church means the, the, the uh, tradition within Protestantism that rejected um, an alliance between church and state. and of course, you know free thinkers and the Enlightenment like you know Thomas Jefferson and people like that. And so that was the kind of settlement you got uh, at the uh, with the, the founding of the Constitution in 1790, the adopting of it, I should say, Which is interesting because even as late as, I think late as the last one was the 1830s, but into the first few decades of the Republic, there still were state-established churches in the United States. They are eventually all done away with, and the expectation was they would be, but still it was there. But it's driven out by these ideals, which Americans, early American Catholics, embraced. Uh, John Carroll, who became the first bishop of Baltimore, another old English Catholic, Uh, This was someone who, again, wrote wrote a whole, who, again, uh, uh, embraced American ideals. I want to say at one point he actually suggested that uh, bishops should be elected, I think. I have to remember that uh, correctly. But again, there's this ideal, this ideal of democracy sort of uh, inflecting on the minds of people uh, in uh, in America, Catholics in America, because they were such a tiny minority. And so by the time you get to the late 19th century, a lot of things change. The biggest thing that changes is immigration, because what's going to happen is that older group of English-speaking, English-background Catholics, ethnically, (laughs) ethnic English, does that that make make sense? But people from that background, they're still there by the end of the 19th century, but they've been dwarfed um, by immigrants. And it's important to note this because these English Catholics, as I've already indicated, are perfectly at home with American uh, culture and society. Um, They've already been Americanized, if you want to use that phrase. The most numerous group, of course, of people because of immigration starting in the 1840s are Irish Catholics, people of Irish descent from the 1840s. And they are unique in a couple of ways. One, besides being the most numerous group, they tend to be the most, um, probably the most, uh, suffer the most prejudice um, because they are uh, Irish Catholics. Um, people of English descent don't like them very much. Um, there's prejudice against them in terms of hiring practices and stuff like that, especially down the social ladder, which is one of the things that the prejudice is partly class. It's partly partly religion, partly class. There is a sense that Irish are just sort of, you know, they're poor and they're ignorant and things of this nature. Um, there's also a suspicion of uh, Irish Catholics by the dominant you know, Anglo-Protestant majority in the United States, partly because they're more involved in, involved in politics. Um, there was a nativist movement, which is very powerful from the 1840s on in the United States. You know, a sort of, you know, native-born Americans, meaning, you know, Anglo-Saxon, which looks askance. And there's a lot of Irish, Irish Catholics involved in politics. You know, Tammany Hall in New York City. That's a sort of, not, not just Irish, but other ones, but they're, they're part of that sort of milieu. And um, one other thing about the Irish Catholics is they, they tend to be uber-hyper-patriotic We've all met the the Irish priest. We all known an Irish priest was really hyper patriotic, and they had reasons to be, um, because quite frankly, American society was a much better deal for Irish Catholics than the society they'd left, where they were, you know, hard to own land in Ireland, had been dominated by Protestant uh, British Protestants for a long, long time. So uh, they tended to be poor when they came here, and so they appreciated the opportunities more. And they're mostly prominent uh, population-wise in the Northeast, although so there are a lot in the Midwest as well. The third dominant group of Catholics in the United States as an immigrant church in the late 19th century, and this is really important, uh, are German Catholics. A lot of them had emigrated um, to the United States after 1848. as a big revolution in the German states in 1848. And they're different uh, in a lot of ways from the Irish Catholics. A lot of them come from you know places like Bavaria in Germany, where they're they're more well-off financially, they're better educated than their Irish confreres, and they are, on the one hand, uh, kind of dismissive of the Irish. They think of them being, being uncultured and not as educated as they are. Um, they're also more suspicious of American society. A lot of these people come from Germany. They have a very rich tradition in places like Bavaria, Munich, places like that. And so they don't want to give up. They're, they're much more in tune with Old World ideas than with their um, Irish Catholic brethren. And then finally, you have other groups that are beginning to do, uh, populate um, the country by the end, the end of the century. Polish, much less to an extent Italians, that'll come later on. Actually, it begins in the 1890s, that little wave of immigration that leads to that. Um, also French, French Canadians. Uh, but they are neither, neither as numerous or influential as the Germans. And in fact, it's the Irish and German Catholics who you're going to see uh, there's a conflict between them within the church in the late 19th century. It's behind this Americanist controversy. <laughs> and um, they had, as I mentioned before, very different attitudes toward American society. And I'm generalizing here, by the way, generalizing. Some bishops you know, didn't matter their ethnicity. They had a different group. But in general, Irish bishops um, um, are probably the ones that were more likely to support social movements like the temperance movement. Um, a, bishop, a couple of bishops I'll come back to. One is John Ireland. John Ireland is the Archbishop of St. Paul, Minnesota. Huge major player in the Americanist controversy. Uh, he's a big supporter. He's a teetotaler. And the reason why, of course, is the Irish like to drink. And so they like the idea of, of going dry or whatever. Uh, of course, most Germans didn't like this at all and didn't support this, and other bishops did. Other... Um, uh, another difference here is that some of the Irish bishops, and again, again doesn't break down totally along ethnic lines, but I'm putting the give you a frame here, like uh, Ireland or Cardinal Gibbons of Baltimore, who was another major player in this at the time in the 1880s and 90s, uh, take a sympathetic view of Catholics joining unions or workers' organizations. Um, this is the time, of course, of labor strife in the 1880s and 90s in the United States. There are lots of strikes, violence between uh, employers and their workers who are striking. This is the era also of the, uh, the first major union, uh, the Knights of Labor, which is found in the United States, by a Catholic, by the way, Terrence Powderly, who eventually leaves the church. Um, uh, but um, uh, it spreads to Canada. It actually gets condemned in Canada. And um, there was some thought that this, this condemnation uh, might by, by Rome might actually co- co- uh, count against um, Catholics in America. But some of these Irish bishops who are sympathetic with the workers like Gibbon in Ireland, head off this condemnation. Uh, on the other hand, however, a lot of German bishops uh, are suspicious of these working men's groups for a lot of reasons. One is they tend to be populated by Protestants. There's you know Protestant influence there. But there's also a different background because German Catholics tended to see in um, organizations like the Knights of Labor um, something similar to secret societies in Europe. And I have to talk about this for a second. Secret societies were founded uh, across Europe in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. With the uh, well, a lot of them with the with the with the intention of overthrowing the government, <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, and um, forming their own nation. So this is the age of nationalism, right? There are still monarchies in Europe, and a lot of them want to be overthrown. A lot of them are anti-Catholic. A lot of them are Masonic in in nature. There's a big thing with Freemasons here. So, uh, whereas again in the Anglophone world, Freemasonry doesn't have the same sort of connotation. Freemasonry sounds like revolutionism to uh, European Catholics. So the Germans aren't, aren't on board with this at all. Another difference is that, uh, a huge difference, one of the big differences is that, again, that their attitudes toward American society. Um, a lot of Irish bishops, not all of them, uh, like John Ireland, like Gibbon, like other uh, bishops, uh, wanted their people when they came to the United States to fully assimilate to American society and culture. Germans did not want this. Um, they were concerned that their traditions and institutions, which they were, they were very proud of, right? Again, they came from a little more sophisticated culture, to be frank, than the Irish did. And they wanted actually institutions to help new arriving German immigrants upon, um, uh, upon their arrival in the United States. In fact, they asked Rome uh, at one point in the late 1890-91 to have you know, German-speaking priests for the German faithful even German-speaking bishops. Uh, Rome rejected this out of hand. <clears throat> and um, in fact, a couple of times they went, they asked them to do things like this. The reason being they didn't want to divide the church and the country along ethnic lines, even though it was already kind of kind of divided along, along ethnic lines, but it would have made it much worse if they'd done that. Nevertheless, all this led to f- friction between um, German-speaking bishops, German bishops, and, and some of the Irish bishops, not all of them, And um, this all came to a head in uh, a crisis over education uh, in the 1870s and 80s. Because, of course, we have all these immigrants coming in from from Europe. They're kind of poor. They can't educate themselves. And so this is the the age when the United States is establishing free educational systems um, across the country. But it's also the age in which you have a lot of people who want to assimilate American Im- immigrants into American society and culture. And uh, there's an effort, by the way, uh, underway. So, of course, you have efforts by Catholics even before this. The Bishop John Hughes of New York uh, was um, one of the people involved in conflicts in New York City over the funding of schools and what was taught in them, public schools. You had concerns among Catholic bishops, Catholic priests, some of them, that if they went to these public schools, they'd be taught, well, Protestantism. Because even in officially secular schools in the United States in the 19th century, they would still you know, start classes with the Lord's Prayer from the King James Bible and stuff like that. And so they were afraid of the influence of you know, uh, the culture at large. And uh, on the other hand, you had the dominant Protestant majority. They were afraid of Catholics with their parochial schools, hiving themselves off of American culture. And so you begin to get these attempts to, uh, throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, to ban state funding of, well, they call them uh, sectarian religious schools. but they mean as parochial schools, parish schools. Uh, in 1970, 1875, excuse me, um, James Blaine, who was the Secretary of War, I think, or Secretary of State, one of the two, proposed an amendment to the Constitution called the Blaine Amendment, which basically... Um, uh, basically, was meant to cut off any sort of aid in line with the First Amendment to what they called uh, schools associated with "quote unquote" religious sects of any son, any kind. It's clearly aimed at Catholics. Um, it failed in Congress; didn't 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 pass. But Congress passed a law instructing states to pass their own, can be called Blaine amendments, which they did. Uh, in certain certain states, they actually. Um, they did pass laws, some of them are still on the books from what I understand, you know, cutting off aid to um, sectarian religious schools, Catholic ones mostly. And at the same time, um, the bishops were trying to do something about this in the United States. They held a council, a plenary council of bishops in Baltimore in 1884, a third one. And in it, they called for the building of parish schools. And this was something Rome was, was encouraging them to do. Again, this is an alternative, obviously, it's sending them to these public schools where you don't know... <laughs> they're trying to assimilate you, culturally speaking, and, hey, can you really trust them with your religion if they're doing that? Um, but the problem, of course, is that they're just... They're, in some areas, there are just too few Catholics to do that. Other areas, there may be enough Catholics, but they're kind of poor, a lot of them. So, um, and some people... And this is where we're getting into the Americanist problem here, is the... Um, some parts of the hierarchy were in favor of sending Catholics Catholics uh, to state schools. The more, quote-unquote, liberal among them, the people who are going to be accused of being Americanists, John Ireland, other people like that, his supporters, they're all in favor of this. Remember, John Ireland's the Archbishop of, of uh, by the time the Americanist crisis gets going, Archbishop of St. Paul, Minnesota. But finally, one of the things that actually sets off the conflict itself goes along with education, and that is um, the passing of a law in Wisconsin in 1889 called the Bennett Law. And this law basically tried to force students ages 9 through 14 to be taught all their major subjects um, in English in any sort of public schools where people reside in their districts, public or private. Uh, this was clearly aimed, by the way, there are a lot of German Catholics in Wisconsin, it was clearly aimed at them, because uh, Germans, again, a lot of them spoke German at home and stuff like that. And uh, Wisconsin bishops protested, eventually got it repealed. but this is actually what led them to appeal to Rome in the first place for having their own, their priests, their bishops, and the person who led the charge against their desire to have, you know, have some help um, some German-speaking help, some institutions in the church just for them, was, in fact, John Ireland. I need to talk about him for a second because he's the key to all this. I mentioned uh, him being the Bishop of St. Paul. He becomes Bishop of St. Paul in 1884. Um, he's born in 1838, dies in 1918, so he's around for a long time. Uh, St. Paul has turned into an ar- archbishopric in 1888, so he becomes an ar- archbishop. He, and again, if you know anything about my, you should read the, listen to the series on Catholic liberalism, He's uh, educated, his seminary education takes place in France, in France. And he is actually educated uh, in that seminary by people who are followers of uh, the Abbe de Lamennais. Uh, Abbe de Lamennais, the whole series, a lot of what it was about, was the, one of the founders of, of Catholic liberalism, of the idea that the church needs to adapt its, 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 uh, its uh, beliefs or its, the church in some way, shape, or form to modern society in order to reach modern society. And again, he's Irish by background. He's hyper-patriotic. Um, but he's also a liberal, and he writes about a lot about this. He's also a brilliant orator. Um, he gives speeches. He's one of these people who wants to uh, appeal to modern society. Uh, he definitely wants to appeal, by the way, and this is something that's part and parcel of liberal Catholicism, is that he wants to appeal especially to elites in American society. They think that um, you have to appeal to elites if the church is going to grow and in fact, he's one of the supporters of the creation of the, um, the uh, Catholic University of America. Why? Because he wants to create elite institutions so they can sort of, you know, to use a contemporary term, dialogue with the modern world better. And uh, he's very optimistic. Uh, he writes a book, actually, it's published a collection of his speeches and writings in 1896 called The Church and Modern Society. And uh, he's very optimistic about American society uh, I would say to the point of delusion. Uh, he writes in some of his, his speeches that yes, I know in the past there have been you know there's been prejudice against Catholics, but that's all going away now, which was patently not true in 1896 or not for a while after actually. And he tended to see, he tended to equate, um, tended to equate the Church with social progress. That the Church in his mind had always been on the on the side of social progress. It had brought the light of Christ into the world. It had raised people up out of spiritual slavery. It should now raise them up out of, you know, economic or whatever uh, distress or whatever in the modern world. He and Cardinal Gibbon were both big on, uh, he actually used the phrase, social justice. And so, um, he, he definitely wants to appeal in that vein. That's his goal, is to to appeal to modern society in its own terms. Again, he makes the caveats about not changing, you know, its immutable doctrines, the Church's immutable doctrines, but Changing the way it's presented to the modern world, and at one point in one of his speeches, you can go read. You actually find this on the internet. It's not that hard to find, and it's pretty it's pretty standard um, uh, liberal stuff from the 19th century. But very interesting is how much he a lie, he thinks of the church as a force for progress, and if it's not being a force for progress, it's not doing the right thing. At one point in one of his speeches, uh, actually the introduction to that collection of speeches that I mentioned. He writes, quote, the history of the church is the history of modern civilization, unquote. That's how much he identified the church with social progress. And again, it's partly through him that this comes about. I mentioned how you had um, this dust up about, okay, does the church, you know, send its kid build its own schools, or is it safe to send its uh, send its kids to public schools? Well, he was a big supporter, of course, of public schools. And he gave a speech actually, and this is one of the things that sets this off. It's already going on, but it kind of you can date it basically from 1890 and this. after you just had the, um, the, the Germans shut down, right? They asked for their own, their own clergy, their own priests. there's this conflict going on between them. Uh, he gave a speech to the National Educational Association in St. Paul in 1890. and uh, long story short, he doesn't say he hates parochial schools, but he regrets they exist. In his mind, he thinks that uh, public schools are the right way to go, uh, that Catholics shouldn't be separated from them. And in fact, if you read the speech, it is mostly aimed at people who hate Catholics. <laughs> it's pretty clearly appealing to people who are suspicious of Catholics. I'll be fair to him that way. And so he's trying to make the argument that Catholics, no, we want to contribute to society. We don't, we're not opposed to it uh, and all this other stuff. But it causes a lot of friction. Because, of course, a lot of these bishops, especially the German ones, interpret this as saying, oh, he doesn't want to have, you know, um, um, doesn't want to have Catholic schools, right? He's, you know, um, giving in to the modern world. He's saying the modern world is basically better or superior somehow to the churches, uh, to the church to church schools, basically. And so you have this row that starts over this because of his speech. Uh, and at the same time, he actually has to, at one point, uh, does. Um, uh, does in 1891 does Ireland. He goes to Rome to clarify his position which he does. On the way back he will actually go to France. He'll give a speech there where he's very much admired by some of these liberal Catholics. <clears throat> Especially remember in the 1890s uh, there are liberal Catholics in France who are backing Leo the th- Pope Leo XIII's call for a reconciliation between the church and the French Republic. public which is sometimes called rallye uh, the idea of rallying to the French Republic. So you have fellow travelers, fellow liberals in, uh, in France. He gives a, a speech there in 1892, does Ireland, which he praises democracy, praises the, you know, civic, whatever, the civic, um, uh, civic virtues of Americans and the American priests, and gives them credit for the remarkable, for the progress of the church in the United States. Uh, and in fact, um, he basically, um, you know, um, there's a, a biography written of Father Isaac Hecker, who had been the founder of the Paulists in the United States earlier on in the century. And Ireland sort of puts him forth as the sort of model for what priests will be like in the future. Like the, the biography, I think, is called The Priest of the Future. Uh, and so you have, you know, he leaves behind his speeches, some of his speeches, and they're translated into French in the 1890s. At the same time, when he comes back into um, um, to the U.S. in 18, 1892, Ireland uh, does something that gets him in trouble. Um, he participates in the World's Fair in Chicago uh, with the papal with a papal legate there, um, emissary from the Pope, and um, and so uh, and so basically you have this um, uh, you have this. Um, um, sort of um, row emerging because in 1883, the next year, the delegate uh, appeared uh, with uh, with Ireland uh, at the uh, uh, Catholic Columbian Congress in Chicago, which was part of the World Congress of Religion. And again, this is almost what the, what is the World Congress of Religion? I already mentioned this a little bit in my earlier podcast, but it's sort of like an um, one of the first you know modern e- ecumenical meetings. And a lot of the critics of people like Ireland and Gibbons uh, really criticized uh, this. And in fact, two years later, the papal legate announced that Rome had forbidden Catholic participation in congresses of religions like this. In other it didn't go over well, in fact. Um, and so you have uh, these things, tensions coming out. And so for the rest of the 1890s, there's going to be uh, a sort of... Uh, almost sort of uh, rhetoric rhetorical war being carried out between two camps the again not totally but mostly sort of irish bishops behind ireland and gibbon uh, gibbon's kind of off to the side but ireland's the main one who favor sort of making compromises if you want to put it that way with american culture they're the americanists uh and then a bunch of conservatives and i'll go through some names here if you want to hear that the major by the way the major opponent of um, of Ireland in the hierarchy with Michael Corrigan, Corrigan, the uh, Archbishop of New York. Well, of course, Corrigan's is you know it's it's Irish, right? And by the way, one of the things that's going on here is not just there's not just ethnic divisions in the church and some ideological divisions. Um, Corrigan and Ireland both badly wanted to be wanted to be named cardinal, <laughs> very badly, both very ambitious. So that's part of this. But you have, and there's, there's another Irish uh, bishop from New York of Rochester, uh, Bernard McQuaid, is on the side of Corgan and the Conservatives. Uh, uh, Winand Wigger of Newark, who's a, a German bishop. The German bishops of Wisconsin were also on board with this. Um, as were some of the faculty at the Catholic University who were actually German. There were several German faculty there. Whereas uh, the faculty, uh, uh, again, it's not... Totally, there's some there's some differences there, um, but you have um, uh, people like John J. Keane, who's the rector of uh, Catholic University again, Irish. He supports John Ireland. You'll have Dennis O'Connell, who's the rector of the North American College in Rome. He also supports John Ireland. Um, there's a clear breakdown here uh, in terms of both ideology, ambition, and and even ethnicity to a certain degree. To a certain degree. Um, and so you have this go on in this, in this, this forum, these Catholic newspapers, um, for several years. Um, and in fact, you're going to have uh, that biography of um, um, Father Isaac Hecker uh, published in 1890, or 1891, with a date here. Uh, I think it's 1891. Uh, it'll be published in French, and this is the big where this thing kind of blows up. In 1887, the more liberal Catholics in Paris decided to publish a French translation of this uh, biography of American he- uh, Isaac Hecker. and so what's going to happen is you're going to have this, you know, um, reaction against sort of this use of Father Hecker as being a sort of, you know, ideal of the new sort of new future of the priesthood. And so you're going to have a series of uh, attacks on Hecker and on what they call Americanism. The term Americanism is a French term, <laughs> oddly enough, originally, Americanisme, Americanisme. And um, in the 18, in, from 1897 onward in France, a bunch of their sermons preached against this. And then uh, articles in some of the French uh, Catholic press uh, are going to, um, um, we're going to ridicule the claims of people like John Ireland that Hecker Isaac Hecker and exemplify the priest of the future they're gonna cast aspersions on father Hecker he is he was actually expelled at one point uh, from the Redemptorist so that's one of the reason they do this and so this will lead to a massive massive blow up in the press this will feed eventually into uh, this will actually get this conflict over these ideas and the you know um, uh, Americanism uh, Americanism um, we'll get into uh Outside of France, into places like Belgium and then Germany, and becomes so big that by the end of this, um, Pope the Thirteenth has to intervene, and that's when he issues his his um, his uh, letter. Uh, it's an apostolic letter. Uh, Testem uh, benevolentiae nostrae um, to our beloved son uh, Cardinal James um, Gibbons. It's a letter addressed to James Gibbon, the Cardinal of of, uh, of Baltimore. And what it effectively does is it basically this is the thing to note about it. It doesn't really condemn. It doesn't. There's no anathemas or anything like this, but it warns against certain tendencies in American Catholic life. And uh, he talked. I'll read some excerpts from this. You can find this on the, on the internet. It's not very long. Um, but Leo says this uh, in the in the in the letter quote. He says he talks about these new opinions and he talks about the lose the biography of, of Thomas Hacker of father hecker and um he says quote the underlying principle of these new opinions is that in order to more easily attract those who differ from her the church should shape her teachings more in accord with the spirit of the age and relax some of her ancient severity and make some concessions to new opinions many think these concessions should be made not only in regard to ways of living but even in regard to doctrines which belong to the deposit of the faith unquote uh, and he goes on to say that, yeah, this is not this is a non-starter. <laughs> um, he says, uh, goes on to say, it does not need many words, beloved son, to prove the falsity of these ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so he particularly one of the things that he, he he harps on here is he says goes on to say um, is Catholics downplaying certain parts of the faith. Uh, He says this here. He says, uh, We cannot all, all, uh," I'm quoting, we cannot consider as altogether blameless the silence which purposely leads to the omission or neglect of some of the principles of Christian doctrine, for all the principles come from the same author and master. Let it be far from anyone's mind to suppress for any reason any doctrine that has been handed down. Such a policy would tend to rather separate Catholics from the Church than to bring in those who differ. There is nothing closer to our heart than to have those who are separated from the fold of Christ return to it, but in no other way than the way pointed out by Christ. Now, he goes on to say that the church can, in some ways, obviously, adapt itself to the spirit of the times. It has, you know, tried to make itself adaptable to certain things. Um, um, yeah, she, and he talks about this, he says this in several places. But uh, he goes on to talk about certain tendencies, if you like. Um, uh, this is where he says uh, he says there is a um, there is an even greater danger and a more manifest opposition to Catholic doctrine and discipline in that opinion of lovers of novelty, according to which they should hold such liberty. He's talking about should be allowed in the church. He's talking about civ- civic liberty, basically that her supervision and watchfulness being in some sense lessened, allowance be granted to the faithful, each one to follow out more freely the leading of his own mind and the trend of his own proper activity. They are of the opinion that such liberty has its counterpart in the newly given civil freedom, which is now the right and foundation of almost every secular state, He's basically talking about pluralism and freedom of opinion and stuff like this. And he's saying that, no, that can't really exist in the church because the church is of divine origin. Um... And and he's basically saying no, you can't do that. <laughs> and effectively, what he, he goes on down there to say, he talks about, about the dangers of quote confounding of license with liberty, the passion for discussing and pouring contempt upon any possible subject, the assumed right to hold whatever opinion one pleases on any subject and set them forth in print to the world, etc, etc. He's talking about the dangers of, of course, well, of of modern society, right, to the faith, and. He goes uh, from there, this this tendency to want to adapt things, to want things to be as free as they are in these modern societies, and then draws some conclusions from them. And I won't go through all of them in detail. But he doesn't actually come out and say, he says these conclusions are basically wrong, but doesn't actually necessarily, again, there's no anathemas handed down or, or whatever. But um, But it's effectively a sort of swatting down of too much optimism about... The um, and he got This I'll read the passage here. He says, From the foregoing is manifest, beloved son, that we are not able to give approval to those views which, in their collective sense, are called by some Americanism. He goes on to say, But if this by this name are understood certain endowments of mine which belong to the American people, just as other characteristics belong to other nations, and if, moreover, by it is designated your political condition and the laws and customs by which you are governed, governed there is no reason to take exception to the name. In other words, if it's just descriptive it's fine. There are certain things that are characteristic of America. You give them a name, that's fine. But he goes on. But if this is so to be understood that the doctrines which have been adverted to above are not only indicated but exalted, there can be no manner of doubt that our venerable brethren brethren the bishops of America would be the first to repudiate and condemn it as being most injurious to themselves and to their country. For it would give rise to the suspicion that there are among you some who would conceive and would have the church in America to be different from what it is in the rest of the world." Um, messal. I'll read out of testem Benevolentiae Now, as it happens, of course, um, uh, Cardinal Gibbon tried to actually go to Rome to uh to to head off this letter and prevent it from being uh, sent. He was too late, and uh, actually, excuse me, Gibbon's cabled uh, to try to stop it, and Ireland went to Rome. Both arrived too late, and it came, um, came, uh, came, uh, came. Dated January twenty second, eighteen ninety nine. Ireland um John Keane uh, other others involved in this all immediately uh, publicly submitted but they all denied they held the condemned doctrines uh and the conservative bishops in the United States felt felt vindicated by this um they basically thought that he uh, he had sort of come down on their side and um <clears throat> Gibbons also sent a reply to the Pope, and he also denied that any educated American held the condemned doctrines uh, laid out in, the, uh, in, in that uh, letter. So a couple of questions here is this: that's basically the end of it. Nobody, in, nobody you know, came out, there hasn't been a, no one since then has come out and said, ah, yes, I am an Americanist and I defy Rome. So the Americanist heresy in that sense went away. But that, the question becomes, of course, was this a real heresy? because that is the charge. Um, uh, that is, you know, first of all, the people who are being, who are not, by the way, nobody was named in that letter, so he's not accusing anybody in particular, but you know who they were talking about. Were they really guilty of heresy? And this is this is the position, by the way, modern, again, most modern Catholic scholars, theologians, they're all very liberal, so take it with a grain of salt, but um, they make the claim that, yeah, there is no such thing as Americanism. Now, I have to say, in a strict sense, I think they're right. Because it doesn't seem like, again, you read some of um, um, Bishop Ireland's speeches. He never comes out and says, those, he draws those sorts of conclusions. Uh, what I think is being, and again, he condemns it, what I think, and, I, and it's kind of a slick uh, turn of phrase that Leo Thirteenth had. Of course, if these things were, you know... If these things existed in the United States, the bishops there would be the first ones to go condemn it. Right? It's like wink, wink—you need to stop talking about this stuff. Uh, I, I think the—I the, think it's right to say this is probably isn't necessarily a heresy. What I think this is Americanism is sort of a tendency to um, to exalt, you know, the good things about America uh, American life or modern society so highly that. Um, that it tends to downplay things about the Catholic faith. And that's why I read that part about from uh, Leo XIII's letter about being silent about certain doctrines. Um, I, in other words, I think what you have here with Americanism is a it's kind of, I don't know how you put it, like an erroneous or a, a tendency which tends towards heresy. Like if you fall to its logical conclusion, it kind of is. Most people don't. Uh, most people, most Americans are not full functioning Americanists. They're not heretics, most of them. It would probably take <clears throat> more thought and more education <laughs> than most of them have <laughs> to be self-consciously uh, heretics like that. No, uh, it's a tendency. That's why I, I gave you that nice little story about Rick Majerus earlier in, in, in the podcast. It, it's not something people necessarily do consciously, although sometimes they do. Um And it's also, by the way, not just in terms of like, you know, speech or, you know, claims or ideas, but also how they act Uh, in the United States because, you know, Catholics have been a minority, you know, since its existence in this country. They tend to downplay certain doctrines that are uncomfortable or make people, might make the Protestant majority uncomfortable back then. Um, Things like, uh, well, I'll give you one big example is... um, no salvation outside the church, right? Nulla salus extra ecclesiam, right? That's been a defined dogma since the Middle Ages. Uh, if you've never heard of uh, Leonard Feeney, uh, Father Leonard Feeney, he was a long story. This is later on. But in the 1940s, he was a, a Catholic priest who was actually excommunicated by his bishop. Why? Because he taught, he insisted publicly, uh, taught his students um, that uh, there was no salvation outside the church. And his his bishop uh, Cushing of of Boston, Cardinal Cushing, excommunicated him. He was eventually reconciled before he died. Uh, The point is, you can kind of see like certain doctrines get soft pedaled, and of course, certain you can't you can't go around just saying you know to everyone that you're all going to hell, you know that sort of thing like that. But those doctrines have never are you cannot get rid of those doctrines. They're part of the Catholic faith permanently. And what Americanism amounts to is a sort of Again, not really explicit. Not us, no, most, most of the time. But uh, you have a lot of that doing that now. A lot of explicit repudiation today. Uh, after the 1960s, everything changed. But before the 1960s, Americanism was not, insofar as it actually existed, was just this tendency. The difference is today, it's almost gone because it's no longer implicit. It's no longer a tendency. A lot of people actually just do go out and just reject whatever they like. So... Um, but I think it's I think it's part and parcel of the American experience American Catholic experience though. this is a perennial temptation in any society, particularly this one, partly because it has been partly because the United States has been and was in the 19th century, despite all the prejudice, despite some of the things going on, it was a lot more hospitable to the Catholic Church than say some governments in Europe or even in Latin America. Uh, liberal governments in, in, the, in Europe and in Latin America were not kind at least. Of the Catholic Church in the 19th century. And I think Americans have realized that. it's one, Again, there's nothing against loving your country. Um, uh, uh, it, there's nothing, you know, it's, obvious, it's a good thing, it's a natural thing, but it gets to the point where you're talking about ultimate things. What's optimal in life? What's best in life? Um, you know, it's one thing to say that, you know, separation of church and the state in the United States, you know, if, even if it's not the ideal has worked out decently well for the Catholic Church. It's another thing to say that, well, you know what, a plurality of religion is, is okay. And the thing is, you can't say that. Um, that yeah, if you really believe that, you know, Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he founded a religion, that he passed it on to people, that there is a true church, you can know that, you know, you can't sort of make them all equal, kind of, a, all of a sudden, which some people want to do. And again, this is a, com- the actual, you know, working out of this is a complex issue. Everybody listening to this this podcast, you're probably on the traditional side. You probably all have Protestant relatives, so this is or if not all of you, a lot of you, and I certainly know people Protestant and otherwise and other things. So, um, but it's yeah, it's more of a, a sort of tendency, which a tendency which tends toward heresy than a heresy itself, I think, and yet kind of captures something unique about the American experience that we had things pretty good in a material way here. And yet, that's not always necessarily compatible with, you know, the faith which is divine that's been given to us. And so you kind have to watch out for that, so you don't go too far uh, in that direction, and then, uh, you know, lose uh, what's most precious—that divine revelation from God. And that's it. That is our uh, episode for uh, well, this time, uh, this week uh, on Americanism. Hope you guys found some of that um, some useful information there. Uh, look out for another episode soon. Um, next week or so next, uh, next week or so. Yeah. Another week or so. Uh, again, once again, thank everybody for listening. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, again, go and, you know, tell people about the podcast, go share it, uh, with your friends, uh, email somebody about it. If you really like it, uh, subscribe, uh, on YouTube, subscribe, you know, iTunes, uh, any places like that, Spotify, and, uh, go like our Facebook page and, and, uh, go check out the, uh, the, um, the uh, um, uh, website churchcontroversy.com. dot com. I have a new article uh, coming out soon in Crisis Magazine, for so so look be on the lookout for that. Uh, come out soon as well. So once again, thank you all for listening. Bless you, all my listeners. God bless you. Have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll uh, hear from me soon. Take care. God bless.